What's up, everybody? I am sharing with you today one of my favorite speeches ever by Dr. Leo Buscalia. It's called The Art of Being Fully Human. And Dr. Buscalia has a rousing speech here. It's really beautiful. I tried to clean it up a little bit, so apologize for the quality, but it's better than you can find anywhere else, I believe. Um, anyway, I hope you do enjoy it. He's a brilliant man, and this is a beautiful speech. So without further ado, Dr. Leo Buscalia. I want you to know that somehow I too am human. I cry too, I'm lonely too, I need too, and that I need you just as desperately as you need me. And on that level we can start communicating, and on that level we can start to learn from each other. Which is what a learning situation always is if it's a truly learning situation. Dr. Leo Buscalia professor of education at the University of Southern California. In an address before an audience at the University of California at Davis, Dr. Buscalia takes us on a journey into the world of human potential in The Art of Being Fully Human. Um, I'd like to tell you something first before I begin. You know, I usually begin by telling you stories about my name because uh, it's such a wonderful name and I do love it so. Uh, it's spelled B-U-S-C-A-G-L-I-A and it gives everybody enormous problems and it's a wonderful way of introducing yourself and getting to know people because it's an outrage. And uh, the, the one I love the best is one I always tell and that is I placed a long distance telephone call several years ago and the line was busy and the operator said that as soon as the line was finished she'd call me and so on. And so uh, when the phone rang about five or ten minutes later I picked it up and she said, would you please tell Dr. Boxcar that his telephone call is through? I said, could that be Biscaglia? She said, sir, it could be damn near anything. <laughs> and it's the truth, and, and not only that, but most of you know if you've read my books or anything else that my name is really not Leo. Leo comes from my middle name, which is Leonardo, and that's nice too. And uh, my first name I really love, but I don't ever dare use, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but my first name is Felice. And that means peace and joy and love, those of you who speak Italian know. So if you see it all together, it's Felice Leonardo Buscaglia, which is like a Verdi opera, you know. I love it. And uh, several years ago, I, I was asked to take a tour, uh, touring around in Asia and speaking to groups and so on. I had to get federal clearance because I would be going into army camps and navy camps and air force camps and so on and so forth. And, and I was in a large room in Los Angeles in the federal building about half the size of this one, filling out little forms and giving it to a little man behind a cage, you know, who checks you out, makes sure that everything's okay. And uh, then he, when, when he's ready for you, he calls your name over a microphone. And I knew this was going to present a problem because if you think of Felice, Leonardo, Buscari, it may be good for Verdi, but it's not so good for Mr. Smith, you know. And so uh, I, I knew that he had reached mine. He had had no trouble with Sally Jones and John, James Brown and everything else. But I knew he'd reached mine when he sort of picked it up and looked at it and did a double take, like what freak could have a name like this? And then he took a deep breath and he started with my first name and he said, Phyllis? <laughs> and I swear I'll answer to anything but Phyllis. Not that I don't like the name Phyllis, it's lovely, but it doesn't suit me, not, not quite. 
Um, last night I was talking to my nephew, who's only five and a half, and he's really curious and he's in that stage that most of you know, that magical stage where kids are running around brailing the world, you know, and they're, they're curious about everything. It's so sad that we stop them, you know. They want to braille and we say, don't touch that and don't put them. No, the world is not set up for children. Uh, that's a great pity because some of us could still do a lot of brailing and learn a lot. Perhaps one of the most beautiful moments in my life was when I spoke to a group of blind people and after it was over, it was a very large group, it was a national conference, one of these beautiful blind men came up and said, Dr. Viscaglia, may I braille you? Have you ever been brailed? <laughs> I know you've been felt, but not brailed. That's a different thing. It was like having a, a cool breeze or an electrical current running over your skin. And uh, uh, first of all, I'd like to start by getting us in a common frame of reference. Now, some of you, uh, I always am a little bit confused as to where to begin, because I know that some of you have read my books because you've written me and wonderful letters, and, uh, or you've seen tapes of mine, or you've owned them, and uh, you know pretty much where my head is. And others of you, and it's right that it should be that way, have no idea who I am. And that's good, too, because then we can get acquainted tonight and sort of verbally braille each other. And if you want to do more, I'll stand down here and we can do more later on. You know that I'm a big Italian hugger. Uh, Mommy used to say you can believe something when you touch it. So if you want to be believed, you know. Um, anyway, I, I'd like to get us in a common frame of reference so that we know pretty much where we stand and what I'm going to be talking to you about tonight, which is a subject that is really keen to my heart, and that is the art, literally the art, of being fully human. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I really love the concept that I am a human being and have all the potential to be a human being with all that this means, which we'll get into tonight as far as some of the things that I believe. But uh, people always want to know, like, when did this begin? When did you begin to become really interested? I don't know, but I do know that there was a moment in my life that was most significant. And everywhere I go, I always start by telling that moment because to me it's, it's very significant and made a difference. And maybe it's responsible for my being here tonight. Um, it, it was about 12 or 13 years ago when I first started at the University of Southern California. And I had one of those mandatory classes, you know, that everybody has to take. And I was a, an assistant professor at the time and I had to teach it, you know. And so I got before, it was a big, they used Bovard Auditorium, a big Barney place that some of you know. And I got in front of this audience and I thought, how will I ever reach them? How will I ever touch them? And, and it was really a, a kind of a traumatic situation to be put into for your first class. But that's what happens, you know. Anyway, I, I stood before the class. And I have many things that I feel very strongly about. And one is, is that the first thing I do when I get before an audience is I look for kind eyeballs. When the audience is in blackness, I'm lost. Uh, talking to myself is not one of my passions. But, but when I can see eyeballs, it, I know that I'm safe. And to me, kind eyeballs are the kind of eyeballs that stay there and when you get lost or you say something stupid or you don't remember what you said before. You look at them and they say, come on, Biscotti, you can do it, you know. And, and I, I'm amazed at how many such eyeballs there are. And in this class, I looked around frantically for eyeballs. And since it was a class that was in there because they didn't want to be, mostly, I didn't see too many eyeballs. I was seeing this. 
or they were looking at their you know, pencil ready to take down anything I said. That's something we've conditioned you. you. You write everything down. I can say, drop dead. Everybody writes it down. It's going to be a trick question on the exam. Anyway, I did find these eyeballs, and I found them in a very exciting young lady about five rows back. And I knew they were my eyeballs because whatever I said, she lit up and had a response. She may not have agreed, but I could tell that she was feeling something, and I knew there was at least one alive person in this class of something like 600 people, and I knew that she could save me. And I was delighted. And uh, I have a lot of things in my classes that all of my students and all of my friends know I call voluntarily mandatory. And one of the things that's voluntarily mandatory is that everybody come and see me in my office at least once every semester. Now that isn't asking too much, but you'd be surprised how many people that intimidates. You know, what does he want to see me for? Well, I try to tell my students, you know, I don't believe you until I can have you in my close proximity. And also, since I am a passionate Italian, I will believe you when I touch you. So when you come and see me, I'm going to touch you. You know, and if that bothers you, take your tranquilizer. And then, you know, when I go out of my office and I see Sally sitting there, I say, hi, Sally. And she says, hello. And I take her hand, her little sweaty palm, and I cover it with mine, and I slowly lead her into the office. And I can sort of see by her eyes, she's thinking, my God, what is he going to do to me? You know, I'm not going to do anything to you, Sally. I just want to relate to you person to person. I want you to know that somehow I, too, am human. I cry, too. I'm lonely, too. I need, too. And that I need you just as desperately as you need me. And on that level, we can start communicating. And on that level, we can start to learn from each other, which is what a learning situation always is if it's a truly learning situation. And you know, sometimes when I'm before an audience like this, it makes me feel frustrated as well as humble because I know that everybody in this audience has something to teach me. That if I were able to be close to you, you could give me as no one else in this world can. And so I don't want to miss it, at least from my students. And so I have this voluntarily mandatory thing. And it's incredible, as I said, how it intimidates people. Probably the funniest thing that ever happened was one girl that came in and sat across from me and I knew there was something wrong because her, her eyelids were shutting and her head was falling forward, you know. And finally I said, uh, you know, are, are you all right? And she said, oh, Dr. Biscaglia, I can't stay with you anymore. She said, in order to get up enough guts to come and see you, I drank a bottle of Ripple and I'm going to be sick. <laughs> Imagine stooping to Ripple. I'm happy to say that things have changed. But nevertheless, one of the big things is that I don't believe that anything can transpire unless we can learn this marvelous process of somehow or other coming together, human being to human being, however we define it. And I was eagerly waiting for this girl to come and see me because I am ego-involved with my friends and my my lovers and my students, and I wanted them desperately. I want them to know that I am. And I wanted to say to her, um, thank you for being alive. Thank you for sharing your enthusiasm and your eagerness and your vibrations. Thank you for making me a better teacher. And about five weeks into the semester, this beautiful young girl was not in her seat. 
And when Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday came, I became curious and I went down to where she sat and asked the people around her what had happened to her. And do you know, in something like six weeks of school, they didn't even know her name? It's no wonder that Schweitzer says, you know, we're all so much together in our world and yet we're all dying of loneliness. And I truly believe it. We neither know how to express it, nor even if we feel it, we're, we're intimidated by it. We don't know how to reach out and say, look, lonely person, take my lonely hand. We can be stronger this way. And so I went to the Dean of Women and I asked about her. And Joan is a very lovely girl and said, I'm, oh, Leo, I'm sorry. Haven't I told you? This girl went to Pacific Palisades, which is an area in Los Angeles that many of you know where sheer cliffs fall into the sea. And there were people there having a picnic on the grass and they saw her drive her car up. She left the ignition running and zombie-like she walked across the grass and without a moment's hesitation threw herself off onto the rocks below. She was 22. It was a good thing that happened to me in a tragedy because all of a sudden I asked myself, what does it matter that we've taught this girl to read and to write and to spell and to do all the things that we think are essential if no one along the line taught her the sacredness of being alive and taught her the dignity and the wonder of her own personal self so that she could easily take it? And I remember being terribly moved by something that I read in a book of Heim Gnaz, probably his last book, and it read like this, and some of you I've shared this with, but bear with me because it will lead us down the path that I hope we can take together tonight. It's a very poignant thing, and it's written by a school principal who gave this to Gnaz. She said, I am a survivor of a concentration camp. My eyes saw what no person should witness. Gas chambers built by learned engineers. Children poisoned by educated physicians. Infants killed by trained nurses. Women and babies shot and killed by high school and college graduates. So I'm suspicious of education. My request is help your students to be human. Your efforts must never produce learned monsters, skilled psychopaths, or educated Eichmanns. Reading and writing and spelling and history and arithmetic are only important if they serve to make our students human. And you know what occurred to me? We teach everything in the world to people except the most essential thing, and that is life. Nobody teaches you about life. You're supposed to know about it. Nobody teaches you how to be a human being and what it means to be a human being and the dignity that it means when you say, I am a human being. Everyone assumes this is something you have or you should have gotten by osmosis. And you know, it's not working by osmosis. I did a rap show this morning on the radio and I always love to do those things because you encounter so many beautiful people. And everybody wants a definition. Isn't that interesting? Dr. Biscaglia, will you define love? And I say, no. 
If you follow me around, I'll try to live it. It's very difficult to define because it's such an enormously broad concept. And the more I live in joy and beauty, the greater lover I become. And so every day I'm becoming a greater and greater and greater lover. And to define it would be to somehow delimit it. But at least along the way, I kind of have an idea where I am. But I also know that if I put my hand out, you could give me new definitions, new strokes, new ideas. And together we could grow to the extent to which we can all of a sudden realize that we're not individual lonely lovers. We're all one, you and me. You know, there's one thing I'm sure of. There are maybe 2,000 people here tonight. There isn't one person who hasn't known loneliness. Isn't that wonderful? There isn't one person that hasn't known despair. Isn't that wonderful? There isn't one person that hasn't cried. But also, there aren't many that haven't laughed, that haven't known joy. And in all those ways, we can communicate we're alike. Because I've known it too. And we're all involved in the same struggle to become fully human which is the best thing we can become. And what a goal. What a wonderful goal. You know, I, I, I always think of Thoreau, that marvelous man, and the statement that he made, oh God, to reach the point of death, only to find that you have never lived at all. What a tragedy when life is your prerogative. It's your right to live. It's your right to know joy. You know, I had a Buddhist teacher once that used to talk about, and the word excites me, rapture. Have you ever known rapture? Oh, you've known ecstasy and joy and all of those things, happiness. But have you ever known rapture? Well, do you know rapture is your right as a human being? Don't leave life without knowing rapture. And so to me, probably the most exciting thing in the world is the realization that I have the potential of being fully human. I can't be a god, but I can be a fully functioning human being. And what I'd like to do tonight is talk to you about some of the things that I think that are essential in order to become a fully functioning human being. And if I want to continue to be a fully functioning human being under these lights, I'm going to have to start taking my clothes off. <laughs> and so this is number one. And you can join me. You know, just let's go. I think, really, that the first thing we need to do to be fully functioning human beings is get back to the point again and this is going to shock a lot of people and you're not going to like it and I'm going to risk it. I'm going to risk not being liked in the first thing that I say but I feel this probably more strongly than anything I'll say tonight. We've got to risk again by saying 
that I like me. We've forgotten that you cannot give to anybody in this world what you do not have. And therefore, you must concentrate on getting. You must become the most beautiful, sensitive, wondrous, magical, unique, fantastic person in the world. Not to stand in front of a mirror and say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? You, you sweet old thing. <laughs> that runs thin. But to be able to say that I have all of these things so that I can give them away and share them with you. Think about it. If I don't have wisdom, I can only teach you my ignorance. If I don't have joy, I can only teach you despair. If I don't have freedom, I can only put you in cages. But everything that I have, I can give away. That's the only reason for having it, but I've got to have it first. And so I dedicate myself to becoming the best Leo the world has ever known. And I send you on your voyage to become the best you that you've ever known. And you know, there's one thing that I will not have. I love you so intensely I can almost not stand it. But I will not have anybody playing follow the guru. Because when you start following my way, it will lead you to me and you will get lost. The only way to follow is your way. Because do you know something that maybe you've forgotten because nobody has told you this for many, many years? You are uniquely something that will never occur again in the history of the world. You're that magic combination that will never be again, and I don't care who you are. How exalted you feel or how lowly you feel, every one of you is something unique and special. I wish we could tell this to children early so it doesn't take you a lifetime to find it out. Every one of you has something to give that only you can give. You have a unique world. You know, people who have studied perception and sensation know that every one of you sees the world in a unique way. The same tree we don't observe in the same way. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could share that tree and see it in 2,000 different ways? Just the concept sends me in orbit. And yet I hear people constantly saying, what have I to offer? You know what you have to offer? a central piece of the crossword puzzle. That unless you assume the responsibility, that picture will never be complete. And I'm convinced that we still have misery, despair, agony, all of those things because people didn't actualize themselves and complete their piece of that wonderful crossword puzzle. Because if they had, the picture would have been clearer. You have something to paint on that tapestry or weave that's uniquely yours. Don't miss the opportunity. You are wondrous. You are magical. There is only one you. You know, next time you pass a mirror, look in and say, my goodness. You know, it's true. There's only one me. You sweet thing. 
if we could get into that. And you know, the wonderful thing is, too, that it doesn't matter where we are in that you. We're only just beginning. Because do you know that no one has ever been able to find a limit to human potential or to humanness? You are unlimited in possibilities. Eric Fromm says the pity in life today is that most of us die before we are fully born. Don't miss yourself! How wonderful it would be. You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross tells us that the people that scream the loudest on their deathbeds are the people who have never lived. They've been observers of life, but not active participators. They've taken no risks. They stood on the sideline. Every time we put our hand out to someone, we run the risk of being slapped. But we also run the risk, a 50-50 chance, which is better than you can get in Las Vegas. You also get a chance of somebody reaching out and petting you and saying, nice little monkey. <laughs> Try it. Remember what I wrote in Love, that wonderful quote from William Faulkner, Wild Palms, when he said, if I had to choose between pain and nothing, I would always choose pain. And so would I. The opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. It's sitting around thinking that existing is life and wondering why you're bored. And the thing that goes along with that is that if you are bored, you're probably boring as hell. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen just happened a few weeks ago. I was at a park and I was, I like to go to this little park. They have little ducks and things. And there was a mom and a papa who had taken, actually taken the time from this mad, busy schedule of all these essential things we must do to take their little kid to the park. You know, I remember that was commonplace in my day. What's happened to that? But you know, this little kid was walking down to the lakeside to braille a duck. <laughs> and Papa saw this, and he started to jam down there, and Mama, who must have been a very unique, lovely person, reached out and grabbed him. She said, let him go. He says, she says, shut up. <laughs> and you know, and Tom toddled this kid, you know, just maybe a very able to walk right close to, and you know the ducks stood there? Go ahead and braille me, baby doll. <laughs> this tale has a happy ending. The baby didn't drown. I'm sure Mama's heart is pounding hard. But all growth involves risk. I'm one of those crazy people who loves to go down and let everybody know that I see them. Heaven knows so many of us are blind because nobody sees us. We're sure we don't exist. And so I walk down the campus and I say, hey, good morning, hi, how are you? The reaction is incredible. You know, some people say, hi. And then I get the opposite extreme of people who say very angrily as if I invaded their privacy, and I probably did. Do I know you? And I say, no, but wouldn't it be nice? And sometimes they say, no, it wouldn't. And then I have a wonderful thing, if you don't think that I still get hurt, I have defense mechanisms that are outrageous. Freud would turn over in his grave. I walk away and I think and I say, gee, what a pity that they didn't want to know me because I'm so nice. 
And so tomorrow when I see them again, I'm going to say to them, good morning again, and give them another chance. <laughs> Works beautifully, you know. And so when I see them, when I see them, I say hi. And you know, they give you again. And you say, yes, I met you yesterday. <laughs> Oh, learn to risk again. Go back to that point in childhood where the whole world was a gigantic, wondrous mystery that you had to understand. Get hooked on it. Say to yourself, I want to know everything. I want to feel and touch and taste and understand everything. And there isn't time of life to do it all in. So I've got to do it now. And value every moment as if it really is your last. Don't just talk about it. Live it. Because it might very well be. You know, lots of people look at death as if it's a real villain. I have come to the point happily where I've made a peace with death. I see death as a very positive force because it tells me that I have a limited amount of time and it plays no tricks. You know, death has told us all that from the time we were born. It's never hidden itself away. If it's hidden, it's because we've hidden it. No one will get out of this world alive. <laughs> Take that down. It's going to be a trick question on the exam. But you know, there are actually some of us who believe we will. We act as if we have forever. Oh, I'll do that tomorrow. I've always wanted to climb a mountain. I'll do it tomorrow. You never will. My students say, when I get out of school, then I'll be free to read. I say, you will not. If you're not doing it now, you never will read. Now's the time. Don't wait until tomorrow to tell somebody you love them. Do it now. Freak them out. <laughs> you know, get on the phone, long distance. Hey, Mom, this is Felice. <laughs> yeah, I know it's three in the morning. Hey, I just have something to tell you. I love you. Now, if she doesn't die of a heart attack, <laughs> it may be one of the most significant moments of her life. I'm always getting people to say, well, she knows that. Maybe she does, but do you ever get tired of hearing it? Say it now. There are lots of ways of saying it. Reach over and touch her. Squeeze. Tell him. Go home and wake up the kids. Hey! I love you, I love you, I love you. My God, Mama's gone crazy. You bet I have. So remember that it all starts with you. And you can't celebrate anybody else in this world until you celebrate yourself. With all your kookiness, your forgetfulness, even your ability to hurt. One of the greatest attributes we have is this marvelous attribute of forgiveness. 
I forgive you for being less than perfect. And I will demand that everybody else be perfect the day that I become perfect, so you're all safe. <laughs> and so you celebrate yourself and your humanness with joy and with wonder and with magic. And then along with that, and perhaps if we have to number them two, you celebrate others. Oh, the joy of my celebrating you. You know, most of you who know my work know that I'm a leaf freak. I love leaves, and fall is my favorite time of the year. Fall to me is complete magic. And I like and worship leaves. They say so much to me. And so when fall comes, and I am surrounded by sycamore trees that are deciduous and the leaves fall, I like to leave them there. In fact, I like to collect them up and bring them in and put them one on each desk of each of my students. You know, there's that crazy Biscali again. <laughs> you know, I say, isn't it incredible? Isn't a leaf a miracle? And then I start talking about sensation and perception, using a leaf as an example. Then all the people that knocked it off lean over and pick it up, you know. <laughs> they didn't know it was part of a lesson. <laughs> now it's significant. But that old leaf wasn't significant just in its own. I remember a wonderful blind girl in the class. When we were sharing our feelings about leaves, somebody said, oh, doesn't it sound good and doesn't it look pretty? And look at the little veins. And we were sharing all these things about what we saw. And she said something none of us had thought of. She said, doesn't a dry leaf smell good? And I like leaves. And so if you ever see my house in the fall, I have very clean, neat neighbors. And it's clean, 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 clean. Vescalia's house, their perception, dirty, 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 dirty. And then clean, 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 clean. You see? In fact, one of them has one of those machines that actually vacuums them up. And you see the leaves going, ah! I can't watch. My leaves are safe. And once I was having a seminar, I always bring my students to my classes, to my, from my classes to my home, because I want them to walk into another, I want, to, want them to see me in a more human place. And so I like to share my house, because my house is me. And so we were there having a seminar when my neighbors came, and they are beautiful, wonderful people. They're just clean. <laughs> And there's nothing wrong with being clean. And so they knocked at the door, and I left the seminar for a minute. I went there, and they said, you know, Leo, we know that you travel on weekends, and you work at the university all hours, and, and so on and so forth. And you haven't got time to do that. Now, we have this marvelous machine. <laughs> we'll do it for you. Now, you know, they really are loving neighbors if they do that for me. And so I said, no, that's OK. I really didn't know that my leaves bothered you, and I'll go out and clean them up. And so we talked a few minutes, and then they left. And then I walked in the room, and of course, my students were incensed. <laughs> Cop out! You should have said this is my house, and I'll do it. I said, shut up! I'm a real non-directive counselor. 
Mama taught me that. There was never any confusion with that woman. She said what she felt, and she said it loud. I said, get out there and pick up those leaves. And you know, and then I said, clean them all up, put them in barrels, and bring them in and dump them on my living room floor. They didn't believe that. You mean it seriously? Yes, I mean it seriously. Nobody can tell me yet what I can have on my living room floor. And so we dumped those wonderful things on my living room floor and we sat on the leaves and continued our seminar. And listen, sometimes, you know, I really need my neighbors. I'm glad they're there. Sometimes by giving up something of a lower order, we achieve something of a much higher order. I had my neighbors and they were happy and I had my leaves and I was happy and it was a very simple thing and do you know that most divorces and most breakups and relationships that could be beautiful happen over stupid insignificant crazy things I want a divorce she squeezes a toothpaste tube in the middle and it drives me crazy my god buy two One, she can squeeze in the middle, and the other, you can be neatsy-poo, curl, 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 and you can both be happy. He drops his clothes all over the house, and I'm his maid. You're not his maid unless you want to be his maid. Leave it on the floor. Walk around it. But what will the neighbors think? Well, the neighbors are just, it'll be their little problem. They come in, and you say, they say, what's this? Six coats on, oh, they're my husband, isn't he cute? He loves his coats on the floor. And I just leave him there. He has such a nice time sorting them out in the morning. You know, is it worth losing this individual for? And the next time you get really annoyed and angry, examine it. Usually it's crazy. Usually, if you sit and examine it, you get the giggles. <laughs> and you say, isn't it neat being a human being? But I have a few things that I want to share. And one is, you know what frightens me possibly more than anything else in our culture, which is also our right of being human, is our lack of humor. We take everything so damn seriously. We've forgotten how to laugh. Think back, those of you who are my age and, and beyond, how much laughter there used to be in homes. I don't hear much laughter anymore. You know, I remember my mother, who was really a remarkable lady. She was magnificently rotund. She was a big lady. You know, she just loved oinking out. <laughs> and that's a quality she passed on to me. Oh, the joy and wonder of food. But you know, Madison Avenue tells us, and it's only Madison Avenue, that we must be terribly slim to be attractive. It depends on where you are. Go to Italy and see who gets the most pinches. The more, the merrier. But you know, I remember she used to get to laughing sometimes so hard that she would get down on the floor and she would rock all 180 pounds of her, you know, and we'd be laughing, wondering, what is she laughing at? 
But I don't hear much laughter anymore. You know, we, we don't laugh. Things are not funny. We've forgotten how to be joyous. And worse than that, we've forgotten and we won't accept our own madness. You know, let's face it. Each of us is a little cuckoo. <laughs> oh, and the joy of getting in touch with that cuckoo-ness again. But you know, Asa Jolie, a wonderful psychoanalyst who wrote a marvelous book and, and set up a philosophy called psychosynthesis, said that the, one of the reasons that we're always all so sad is that we're all in routines. Our whole lives are based upon timed routines. And you know, it's true. He says, follow yourself through a day. You usually get up on the same side of the bed. You put on the same slippers and the same robe, or if you're not into slippers and robe, you wander into the john. You then get the toothpaste, and you look yourself in the mirror and say, oh, God. And then you do 40 strokes this way and 40 strokes this way, and then you go to the john. Then you go into the kitchen, and you make your toast, and you butter it, and you pour your coffee, and you talk about this, and then you get up and you go out the same door. One day, do it all backwards, just for the hell of it. Crawl over her. You know? She says, what are you doing? I'm getting out of bed. You know, instead of walking into the john, throw up the window in the bedroom and jump out and jog around the house seven times. <laughs> Rush into the front door and say, buongiorno, mia cara. Say, guess what? I'm taking you to breakfast this morning. She says, my God, it isn't Sunday. <laughs> I know, but let's do it anyway. And find out how exciting that becomes. Some of your most exciting evenings, you know, can be when you have almost nothing, but you eat almost nothing by candlelight and soft music. You've had filet mignons that didn't taste as good. Live nutty, just occasionally. Just once in a while and see what happens. It brightens up the day. You know, recently I, I was invited to speak to a thousand nuns in Wisconsin. A thousand nuns in Felice. <laughs> oh, Mama was in ecstasy up there, I'm sure. You know, here's my little Felice talking to a thousand nuns. Oh, what a beautiful, loving weekend we had. And you know, when they wrote me, they said, we don't have any money, but this is our coming home to our mother house. And we're, we haven't, some of us haven't seen each other for 10 years. And it's going to be so nice. And we'd like to have a, a, we'd like to base our theme on love. And we'd like to come and have you share with us. And I said, sure, just bring me out and we'll decide later on. Don't worry about money. And I went there and had this wonderful thing. And everything I saw that I commented on, they did something about it. It was fall, and fall in Wisconsin. Oh. But you know, I commented to these wonderful women how beautiful the leaves were. And you know, they all went out and got leaves and gave me a great big bag of leaves to take home with me. I commented on the largest pumpkin I had ever seen. Wisconsin pumpkins are freaks. Enormous! They gave it to me to 
There was a sister there that made bread that was worthy of any gourmet table. I almost wept. You should see me at a good table. I do cry. You know, I said, dude, what's the matter, Biscotti? Oh, this is so good. She gave me two loaves of bread. And then just before I got on the plane that evening, very late, it was when a red-eye flight on Continental out of Chicago. Some of you have been on them. 747, nobody on it except stewardesses. And me, with my pumpkin, and my bread, and my leaves. You know, none of those things, think about it, you can't check a pumpkin, a bag of fall leaves. And I carried them all out. I'm sure they would have stopped me if it had been anything else, but there was nobody in the plane. And so I sat down there, and they put first coffee, tea, and milk. You know? And after that routine was over, then they dim the lights, and there's nothing really quite as wonderful as being hundreds of miles in the air, in dim lights, you know, very quiet, going from nowhere to nowhere, someplace suspended, and all of a sudden, madness occurred to me. And I thought, I know what I'm gonna do. And so I went in the center section, and I picked up all the arms, and I took my leaves, and I laid them out. And then I took the pumpkin and I put it in the middle of the seat and the two pieces of bread there and scattered the cheese around and pressed the stewardess button. You know, and here came this poor tired girl, you know, sort of sauntering back, waiting for coffee, tea, or milk. And I said, look. And she said, oh my God. And she lit up like a Christmas tree. And I said, I want to share all these things. They were shared with me, and I want to share them with you and the other stewardesses if they want to. She said, hold on. And she went and got everybody. They got, illegally, two beautiful bottles of California wine. They went to first class and served them in real glass instead of those plastic things. That was the quickest trip back from Chicago any of us have ever had. And we set up a routine. We have an annual reunion in the fall. Because somebody decided that they were going to take what could have been mundane and turn it into a little bit of magic. And because you are human, you do have magic. Get in touch with it. When you feel the insanity rising, don't push it down, let it come out. Just once, and then let me know what happens. And then I think if we're going to be human, we've got to recognize, for want of something better, a democratic character. And that means the realization that there is nobody better or worse than we are. Nobody better or worse than we are. I have a little trick. When I begin to create idols, and there is a danger in creating idols, I take this idol and I try to fantasize them sitting on the john. Boy, does that make them human fast. You know, do it, think about it, Farrah Fawcett Major. How about it? Henry Kissinger. 
You know, we never think about it, but they do it too. I think sometimes we tend to forget that everybody is human. I always tell a story because it was such a meaningful one for me. I was picked because I was supposed to know something about education to go to a brain bank, for goodness sakes, in St. Louis. Educators, certain about 15 or 20 educators from across the United States prepared learned papers to deliver at a brain bank. And we went there, and for three days, we listened to learned papers. Good God. All that I can say is that if the future of education in America depended on those learned people, we are doomed. And halfway through those learned papers, I decided I'd had enough. The madness came up. And I said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, and I disappeared. And I was walking along the river, and I saw a little old man, no teeth, really what we would call dirty because we're clean. You know, it's all relative. Drinking a bottle of old, cheap California wine, piece of cheese, big grin on his face, sparkly Kris Kringle eyes. And I passed by, and I almost passed him by. And he said, good morning, son. Anyone who calls me son is my buddy. So I sat down and we started rapping. We shared the wine, we shared the cheese, and we also shared philosophy. And I said to this man whom we might have passed by, I said, you know, you look so happy and contented and centered and peaceful. I, do you have a secret to life? He said, indeed I do, without a moment's hesitation. Indeed I do. I said, would you share it with me? Of course, son. He said, if you want to live happy all of your life, Always keep your mind full and your bowels empty. <laughs> now there's wisdom. Nobody asked him about a blood, you know, a brain bank. They should have, because I think the converse in our country is mostly true. <laughs> the democratic character allows everybody to be in proper perspective. Don't envy anyone. You are the magic. It's here and I love it. And some of you have heard it because I've read it to you before. It's okay because I want to read it again. And I love it every time I read it. It's something that was in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology and it was written by an 85-year-old man who had just learned that he was going to die. And it says everything that I've tried to share with you tonight about being human and magically. And this is what he says. And it's not depressing, it's gorgeous. He says, if I had to live my life over again, I'd try to make more mistakes next time. I'd try not to be so damn perfect. We have a fetish for perfection. I'd relax more, I'd limber up, I'd be sillier than I'd been on this trip. In fact, I know very few things that I would take quite so seriously. I'd be crazier, and I'd certainly be less hygienic. <laughs> Madison Avenue, don't tell anybody, has us in a trap. 
You know, they've got us now. I remember when I was just a kid growing up, everything that was necessary for personal hygiene, we did with one bar of ivory soap. Now we have a little squirt for this, a little squirt for that, uh, something to put here, and something to wash it out, and something to add it, and something to make it softer, and something for that. And female deodorant, and male deodorant, and baby deodorant. We go into the john now and emerge one hour later. And then at night we go in and do everything in reverse. Oils and greases. And it's ridiculous. We're so clean, we don't even know what we smell like anymore. Human odors are offensive to us. We're being alienated from ourselves. Just once, go without washing for 24 hours and then smell yourself. <laughs> My God, this is me! I'd take more chances, he said. I'd take more trips. I'd climb more mountains. I'd swim more rivers and I'd watch, watch more sunsets. I'd burn more gasoline. I'd eat more ice cream and fewer beans. <laughs> you know, uh, let's face it. We are deniers of ourselves, most of us. Every once in a while, do your thing. You know, I see people standing in front of the gourmet shelves thinking, should I buy it? But it's $6.95. You know, just once say, what the hell, I'll take six. <laughs> oh, it makes you feel so good. You know, go home and say, what's for dinner tonight? Well, we have only this, but it was expensive. I'd have, more, I'd have more actual troubles and fewer imaginary ones. Do you know that 90% of what we worry about doesn't happen anyway? Insurance companies know that. That's why they're so wealthy. <laughs> We're insured for falling arches and rising arches. Open eyelids and shut eyelids, growling stomachs and silent stomachs. You never know. You might as well worry about them. You see, I was one of those people who lived prophylactically, insanely, and sensibly, hour after hour and day after day. Oh, that doesn't mean I didn't have my moments. But if I had it all over to do, I'd have more of those moments. In fact, I'd try to have nothing but wonderful moments side by side, living the now, not missing the now, because that's what life really is, a wonderful series of nows. Not tomorrows, they may never come. Not yesterdays, they've been and there's nothing you can do about it. So you made a mistake, so tough. But there's now. Don't miss it. Everything else is illusion except what's happening between you and me right at this moment. Don't you know? I've been one of those people who never went anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a gargle, a raincoat, and a parachute. <laughs> if I had it to do all over again, I'd travel lighter next time. You know, Buddha once said something that really moved me when I first heard it, and it's made a difference in my life. He says, when you have nothing, you have nothing to worry about. 
Oh, we think, isn't that marvelous wisdom? And then we collect and we collect and we collect. And we build, build a, b bigger burglar alarms and we worry more about leaving the house and we buy bigger cars and we're afraid to have them dented. If you have an old junk, you say, run into me, sister, brother, try bashing me in the back, see if I care. You know, my God, someone's put a scratch in the fender. If you have nothing, you have nothing to worry about. I'm not advocating having nothing, but I'm also not advocating being professional collectors. You know, some of us have never thrown away anything in our lifetime. Our closets are full of things we'll never use. We have beautiful china, but we never use it. Who well, they're gonna chip it. <laughs> you know, just once, take one and go, gone. <laughs> Show them who's boss. That was 38.50, Buster. But it was just a thing. If I had my life to live over again, I'd start barefoot earlier in the spring, and I'd stay that way later in the fall. I'd play hooky a lot more. Don't you know that morning when you say, oh, I'm going to The one morning that you say, I'm going to do it. I'd ride more merry-go-rounds. I'd smell more flowers. I'd hug more children. I'd tell more people that I love them. If I had my life to live over again. But you see, I don't. You know, I have a strong feeling that this wonderful quality of humanness, with all of its wonder, is God's gift to you. And what you do with it is your gift to God. Don't satisfy yourself with anything less than offering God the perfect gift that you are. And have a blast doing it. Thank you. Funding for this program has been provided by this station and other public television stations.